Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. When you think of film editors, let's face it, healthy habits and good physical conditioning are not images that immediately come to mind. But with a pandemic upon us and with the high cost of the passion tax that we constantly pay as Hollywood creatives, healthy living is no longer an option. It is a necessity. If we want strong immune systems and creative minds that are resilient to high stress environments, it is imperative that all of us adopt healthier habits like eating better and moving more throughout the day. Now, while it might seem as though these are new concepts, Today's guest proves that these ideas have been successful for decades. Legendary and Oscar-winning Hollywood film editor Walter Murch, who has edited such films as Tomorrowland, Cold Mountain, The English Patient, Apocalypse Now, and The Godfather 3, just to name a very select few, knows just how important it is to be health-conscious and physically fit in order to do the intense creative work that is required to edit critically acclaimed films and documentaries. Walter has spent years not only honing his craft, but also honing his most valuable assets, his body and his mind. And for those of you who might be unaware, Walter is the leading pioneer in the standing desk movement. I have just amplified his work, but he started this decades ago. In today's conversation, Walter shares his secrets for maintaining his health and his energy levels when he's working long hours on feature films. He dives deep into the neuroscience of why our brains work better when our bodies are moving more, and he talks about the strategies that he uses to incorporate movement throughout his day. We talk in detail about his specific creative process, the long-standing issue of burnout and excessive work hours, and how he feels about editors being classified as below the line. Now, just to be clear up front, while this was originally a conversation from the Fitness and Post days, there is an abundance of timeless wisdom to be gleaned from the legend himself, who has survived well over four decades in a brutal industry where when people start dropping like flies, 
the executives simply reply, then get more flies, as you are going to hear Walter talk about more in a bit. All right, without further ado, my conversation with legendary Oscar-winning editor Walter Murch. So I'm here today with none other than the Walter Murch. And if there's anybody listening to this call that is not aware of Walter Murch or his work, I highly suggest that you turn off this podcast immediately and you sit down and you read the conversations, you read in the blink of an eye, and you read behind the scene. Because to me, those are kind of the film theory and editing theory 101 courses that every single person needs to go through if they really want to understand the art form of editing. So if you feel that going on lynda.com or going to Larry Jordan's website and learning Premiere or Avid or Final Cut Pro 10 is really the place to start if you want to be an editor, I couldn't disagree more. And I just, I cannot express how excited I am to have you on the other end of this microphone. So thank you so much, Walter, for doing this. Thank you, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. I know that I had mentioned this to you privately, but I want to make sure that our audience is aware that the instigation for every single thing that I've done for the last almost 10 years now to really focus on my health and combined focus on health and wellness with being a great editor comes from you. So when everybody thinks of, oh, I stand at my desk, they're like, oh yeah, like Walter Murch. And what I'm finding is that now I'm starting to hear people say, yeah, I'm starting to stand at my desk, you know, like Zach Arnold and Walter Murch, which to me is just it's such a cool thing to see people kind of, you know, seeing us named in the same sentence. Yeah. But it goes much further than just standing at a desk. And I remember kind of if I go back to a couple other episodes where I talk a lot about how to really get out there and meet people and network, I actually sent you a personal letter to your home. I think it was probably about 10 years ago now. And you and I had kind of a, a brief conversation over email for a while. Um, and one of the things that I had said to you, which I'm embarrassed about, but I'm kind of not embarrassed about, is I had said that behind the scene is most likely my favorite book that I've ever read about editing and everybody needs to read it. Even though the technology in it is completely outdated, it doesn't matter at all because the theory and the ideas behind it are great. And I told you that behind the scene was like porn for editors. <laughs> and I still stand by that because it really is like, it was just, I could not put it down and it took me like two days to get through it. And it is a thick book. And I just pulled it off my bookshelf last night and there are highlights everywhere, post-its everywhere. But I found the one phrase that in my mind is what started the fitness and post revolution, even though this was a decade ago, it's what planted the seed of my mind. So I'm going to read this passage and this is where it all began for me. And this is where I want to go with the conversation today. So for those who don't know, behind the scene, which is actually spelled S-E-E-N, is all about the process that you went through on a daily basis, editing the feature film Cold Mountain using Final Cut Pro, which back then was just unheard of and really, really innovative and like, oh my God, that's crazy. Can you even do that? But you were, it was an early passage near the beginning of the film. You had moved to Romania with the, the film crew. And the this passage reads, even in the edit, meaning as opposed to being on the set, far from set, there will be long nights, missed meals, and tensions. So Walter uses the time leading up to a film start date to get in good physical condition. This is the week of the summer solstice, so there's ample daylight to schedule four or eight mile runs every day. And I will never forget, when I read that passage, I literally put the book down. I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. <laughs> I can't just treat editing in a matter that 
I have to understand the cuts and I have to read the script. I actually physically have to prepare no different than if I were an Olympian getting ready for an event. You don't, don't just wake up and run a mile. You get ready for it. And, and this is what really started everything. So that, that's what I want the conversation to be about today. So tell me a little bit about how you approach being an editor and being in such a stressful environment with such long hours as far as your health is concerned because i know that you you know yeah. make it a point to take walks and do so i really want to understand because you have such a robust background in brain science and neuroscience why it's so important to you that you do things like getting good physical condition before working on a show well uh, a little background background uh, is that my dad uh, was an artist and he had his studio in our apartment in New York. And uh, it was a very sedentary job. He would go into his room and he would work for 12, 14 hours a day uh, making paintings. And uh, he keeled over at age 60 of a heart attack when I was 24. And this had a big effect on me, as you can imagine. Starting about then, I, I thought, well, I'm not going to let that happen to me. And so I started running uh, back in my early 20s, and I've just kept up at it ever since. Uh, here we are 50-plus years later. So uh, th th there are enough similarities between what he was doing and what we do in the edit room, meaning you're in a closed environment, you're in there under stressful situations with deadlines. You know, the environment is not particularly toxic, but it's not friendly either, uh, just in terms of all of the, the paraphernalia that surrounds you. Um, and uh, you have to take that into consideration. And you combine that with the fact that uh, much of what we do, especially in feature theatrical films, you know, we're, we're in there more or less for about a year from the from when the film starts shooting until the film is in the theaters, give or take a couple of months. Uh, it's, it's a year, which is sort of marathony, uh, especially when you consider that towards the uh, end of it, you can be easily be working seven days a week, 14 hours a day. So there has to be, uh, you, you have to find ways to work in, um, but your physical and, and mental health in, into the into the equation. Otherwise, you, like my father, will just keel over one day. Yeah, and that's really something that I'm trying to impress upon people is playing the long game. And I've used the analogy in the past of you have to look at your health as a game of chess and not a game of checkers. And when you look at the, the kind of slog that we're going to go through, whether it's on a feature film or a season of television, there's just no respite. There's no real breaks. It's not like they're going to say, oh, you know what, why don't you just take some time to recovering and recoup and you know we'll 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 go ahead and we'll start fresh next week it just it doesn't happen it's right. it's this treadmill that never stops it's the one of the the images i always get in my mind and i'm going to date myself a little bit but um for the younger audience but you know when i watched i love lucy as a kid there's that great episode where she's on the assembly line and the all the bars, yeah exactly the, bars, the little candies are going across and she's keeping up at first and then all of a sudden they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and she's buried in them and that's right. how it can feel 
feel with dailies where at first you feel like you've gotten a hold of it, but then the conveyor belt just doesn't stop and they just keep coming and coming and coming. So what I really want to know first is given that you've really been in the heat of some of the, you know, the, the craziest projects literally in the history of cinema, one of them, of course, being Apocalypse Now and, you know, being in the middle of Cold Mountain, English patient, um, and just really high profile, very high stress films. What is your process? If you know that you need to prepare for a year or a year and a half in the trenches, what is your process as far as getting your brain ready, getting your body ready? Like, what do you actually go through? It's a couple of things. There's the physical aspect, uh, which is I, I try to run over, uh, you know, on my day off, whatever it happens to be. Um, I try to run, uh, do an eight mile run, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes uh, less. And then during the uh, week, I try to f- arrange it so that I uh, I can walk to work, uh, you know, park. If, if I'm driving a car, park a little bit away from work and walk the last mile or so uh, to work or park at work and then walk a mile or anyway. Get some get some daily physical exercise as well as uh, the once a week, uh, a little bit little bit longer. Along with that is uh, I do just the usual kind of push ups and sit ups and uh, combine that with a kind of meditation, not long, maybe three or four minutes uh, in the morning, just to focus on what are we doing today. Uh, try to clear the mind and just let yourself be open to whatever the whatever that day will bring and try to imagine what you're going to achieve that day. I also, uh, when I do my walks and runs, I also take a little Olympus digital recorder with me so that if some thought occurs to me during the run um, or walk, I just, uh, you know, record it. And then at at some point later in the day, I will transcribe that stuff, just write it down. What, what was I thinking uh, to try to organize thoughts that sometimes really important ideas come to you and unless you catch them with this sort of uh, mental butterfly net, uh, you won't have a very good uh, collection of butterflies. And uh, that's one of the things that keeps us going is the ideas about what we're trying to achieve and what unique ways we can do this. And if you, if you don't do that, then the work isn't going to be as good. And in a weird way, you are going to feel more oppressed by it because the external world, meaning the, the conditions under which you're working and the ideas of other people around you are going to have a greater influence upon you than vice versa. So some way to let your own ideas uh, and sometimes very ephemeral ideas turn out to be the most important to capture them and to get them down on paper uh, or on the computer or something so that you can then uh, implement them at, you know, when the, when the time is right. The other thing I do is uh, I obviously read the script a number of times and then I time the script, um, I, which takes about a day to actually do it, to do it right. 
And this is normally in the work uh, description of the script supervisor, but I feel it should be also uh, something that every editor does. Before anything is shot, if you're going to really do this thing, time it. Because to time it, you have to inhabit every scene. Uh, you have to imagine the space of the, in which these things are happening. You have to become the characters. You have to... Uh, start to uh, live this particular film because this is going to be with you. And if, again, if you have timed it, first of all, you, you, at the end of that process, you will have an estimation of how long this film is uh, really going to be. And uh, that's a help in, you know, whenever you start to cut a scene, you can say, well, when I imagined this scene, I thought it was going to be two minutes and 12 seconds long. Um, hmm, it looks like it's going to be much shorter. I wonder why that is. And that gives you an insight into the difference between your initial idea about the project and how the director, in this case, is actually realizing it. So you, you have that as a resource, but the, the main thing is to start as early as possible to really inhabit that uh, work uh, as as directly as you possibly can. Well, there are at least 10 fantastic nuggets that I want to jump into in there before even moving forwards. The first of which is a very, very common question that I get. And it's it's really kind of one of the, the number one giant burning pains of the people in this industry is the idea of, well, I just don't have the time to exercise or be active during the day because there's just too much to do. I don't have time to take breaks and I'm not as efficient. If I'm taking a 15 minute walking break, I'm not getting as much done. And being somebody that understands the neuroscience so incredibly well, like when I feel like I pride myself as being a geek of the brain and neuroscience, I then look at you and you're sending me emails emails with pictures of neural networks. I'm like, okay, so <laughs> clearly this guy is a bigger brain geek than I am, but we're, we're definitely cut from the same cloth. So can you help, number one, just kind of walk through how you actually, on a very tactical level, make sure that you're taking these breaks on a regular basis? And number two, why it's so important and will actually increase your productivity and increase your ability to make creative thoughts? Well, uh, just on the, on the basic level, find some way, and, and you can do it, uh, it's not that hard to walk as much as possible. And, um, you know, if I'm on location, like uh, I was in location in Argentina working on Francis's last film uh, a couple of years ago, and, um, you know, I chose some place to live that I knew was about a mile and a half away from where uh, we were working so that I could walk that mile and a half to work and walk back in the evening. And you get the exercise. Walking is an inherently uh, basic part of human physiology and neurology. Just that the, the act of walking, that, that exercise of the large muscle groups is um, really basic to maintaining uh, good health. And people have been walking for three million years uh, on two legs. And so it's, it's a basic thing that, that puts you in touch with something basic about your own humanity. And, uh, and once you start walking, there's something about that rhythm that will prompt ideas to come to you. 
And that's the other uh, thing I was talking about earlier, which is take a little recorder with you. And if you get an idea uh, as you're walking, just turn the recorder on and say what it is. And uh, track that butterfly, as, as, I, uh, as I mentioned. Plus, I, and when I break for lunch, I try uh, before breaking just to do some touch-your-toes touch exercises or leg lifts, uh, just something that takes maybe uh, a minute or so, but it also gets the blood running uh, in, a, in a different way. Um, as uh, you mentioned earlier, I stand when I'm editing. I don't stand 14 hours a day. Uh, I work at an architect's table uh, and I have an architect's chair so that if I'm reviewing stuff uh, or looking at something that I've cut, then I will sit in this chair. It's, it's like a high architect's chair and uh, look at, uh, at the screen. Uh, but when I'm actually putting the stuff together um, in the first place or re-editing something, then I jump off the chair and I'm standing at the, the desk. And standing is important. There's, there's all kinds of articles online now, how your chair is your enemy, don't sit down, stand. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been doing this for many years now. I, when I began editing, I was working on the movieola, and I was a standing editor back then. I used to take two little two-inch cores and prop them under the, on top of the legs of the movieola so that the movieola was tilted slightly back so that I could stand at it. <clears throat> and when I started using Kims and Steambacks in the early 70s, I sat at them because that was how they were built. But I became increasingly frustrated with uh, that. And I developed what I called Steenbeck neck. Because when you're working on the Moviola, uh, you are constantly in motion with, uh, again, with the large muscles. You're standing and you're moving you know, big arm movements to get the film you know, out of the bin into the Moviola and then taking it out of the bag at the back of the Moviola, rewinding, all of that kind of stuff. Very manual work. And uh, when the Kems and Steambecks came in, uh, people started sitting, and uh, the only thing that they would move would be their wrist. So um, after a couple of years of doing this, I became frustrated with it. And I suddenly had a realization one day, which is, wait a minute, what is a Chem or a Steambeck? It's just a rewind table that's horizontal rather than vertical. So if it's a rewind table, let me put it at the same height that a rewind table is. So I had some extra strong plywood, built two boxes, uh, I think they were like 16 inches square, and lifted the chem up onto these boxes. It's a heavy thing, 600 pounds, I think. But, uh, you know, a couple of us got together and lifted it up onto the boxes, and that was back in the early 80s, I think, mid-80s. You know, 30 years later, I'm still doing it. Uh, it's very, very easy if you uh, are editing digitally. You don't have to lift 600 pounds of iron to get it up on these boxes. You just, I use an architect's table, as I said, uh, and uh, put, the, put the screens on a, uh, a rack in the, behind the table. But the important thing is if you're standing, I think it affects your health. In a, in a good way, it also affects how you think about the material. 
I make the analogy that editing film is like a combination of being a short order cook, a brain surgeon, and an orchestra conductor. And all of each of those three people stand to do what they do. Um, they could sit, they could sit if they had to, but they don't because of the work that they do is extremely time dependent. Time is important when you're conducting an orchestra. Time is important when you're conducting, uh, when you're cooking. Time is important when you're being a uh, surgeon. And time is incredibly important when you're editing. And when you're standing, you have a different relationship to time, I think. The other thing about it is that we have two circulatory systems in our body. There's the blood system, which the heart is pumping away and you have to treat your heart nicely. You have to exercise it and make sure you don't eat the wrong foods. The other circulatory system we have is the lymphatic system, uh, which is the uh, system that cleans out the body, cleans out the junk that's in between your cells in your body. And this does not have a heart. The reason we have a heart is that we would die within a few seconds if the blood was not delivering oxygen to our cells. So the heart is a organ that is, uh, it, it's extremely expensive to run a heart, but it's extremely necessary if we want to live. The lymphatic system is not quite as, uh, you know, if your lymphatic system isn't, isn't working, you, you know, you, you can survive for uh, a day, um, but in the long term, it's just as damaging. What is it that makes your lymphatic system work are the large muscles of your body, principally your legs. And if you're sitting, your lymphatic system shuts down, which means that uh, poisons and other junk that accumulates in your body isn't cleaned up uh, effectively. So by exercising, walking, uh, to and from work, and then standing as much as possible when you work, you are uh, cleaning your body out. You, you are just uh, making yourself uh, healthy uh, by that process. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a toe 
diplomat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height-adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, and I really I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to hire you as my my marketing manager and spokesperson for <laughs> Fitness and Post because you basically just laid out everything in just perfect clarity for exactly what it is I've been trying to say for the last couple of years that it's not just about standing at your desk, right? Because I, I talk to a lot of people and they'll see the picture of Walter Murch standing at his architect's table or they'll now hear me talk about standing and they say, yeah, I got a standing desk, but oh, I did it all day long. And my legs are so tired and my lower back hurt. It's just not for me, right? Sure. And what I, what I love is that you said you also have a chair, which people don't think because they think I'm either a standing editor or I'm a sitting editor. Forget it. And there's, mm-hmm. yeah, and there's, there's so much science out there now that's saying sitting is the new smoking. And I think right. that this is a very easy cop-out. And what people need to understand is that sitting is not necessarily the new smoking. Being sedentary in one position all day is the new smoking, which means that if you stand in one position for 14 hours a day, you're maybe 2% healthier than sitting all day long because you're still not moving. You're still not letting your circulatory system move. You're not letting the lymphatic system move. And the the analogy that I help people understand the lymphatic system is that it's your sewer system. Right, exactly, exactly. It's the sewer system for your your body and your brain to get all the crap out. And if it's shut down, just imagine what happens at your house if your sewer system doesn't work. It gets pretty messy and that will happen in the human body as well. And I try to give the analogy of if you're sitting all day long, you're basically a swamp or a pond. But if you're Mm -hmm. standing, sitting, moving like I have a treadmill workstation, so I'm on a treadmill getting several miles a day while I'm cutting, I'm a flowing, rushing river where anything that's thrown in there is just taken away and it's just, you know, you, you have this beautiful, clean water, but a swamp yeah. is just stagnant. And that's what yeah. your body's doing when you're sitting. And that's why it's so important to be moving or doing the push-ups or doing the leg lifts or whatever it is, right. just, just to make sure that you keep moving. Because so many people will say, well, I just don't have time to go to the gym for an hour. So I'm just not going to do it. You don't have to. That's not what it takes know. to be healthy. If, if you want to body sculpt and you want to get in shape and you want to lose 30, 40 pounds, you know, you pr- you might need to make dedicated time to do those things, but if you just want to maintain your body health and your brain health, it just requires little tiny changes throughout the day, like parking a little bit further away. That's one of the things that I'll tell yeah. people in my list of small changes, I'll say that what I do is, and I, I mean, I live like 90 minutes away from my office, so I'm certainly not walking, right. but I make the choice to find the absolute furthest parking spot from the door of the building, which right. does two things. Number one, it allows me to, to walk more before I get to the office. But number two, it's much less stressful because I'm not trying to get the best spot and saying, oh man, I didn't get a spot. Now I'm all tense and stressed out at the beginning of the day. Nobody ever yeah. takes my parking spot because nobody's crazy enough to walk that 
that far. <laughs> so it, it's those little yeah. tiny things. And then deciding, you know what, I'm just going to take the stairs instead of the elevator. These are all things that are free. They're all things that are fairly simple to implement. And they're not taking that precious time away where you're thinking, I just don't have time to do this because I'm so busy and I'm so important and I can't do these things. And you had mentioned something called, I believe it was breaking for lunch. I, I'm not really sure what that term means, right. but I know it's a foreign term to most people. Right. In, in, uh, in England, uh, the, the term is lunch al desco. <laughs> yes. I think that it's the, it's exactly the same term. I'm in lunching that. al desco today. And that's one of those policies that I've just instituted pretty much universally, where even if I can't take a quote unquote lunch break, I will never sit in front of my desk and eat. And it might right. be as simple as sitting on the couch to eat. It might be as simple as sitting on the chair that's right outside my office door to eat, but I never will eat right in front of my desk because it's going to inhibit your digestion. It's There's going to be high levels of cortisol in your body because you're just not slowing down. And right. for people that are thinking, well, I can't lose those 10 minutes. I have deadlines. You need to look at the long game over the course of a day, week, or month. If you're not taking those breaks and you're not recharging, you're going to burn out and you're actually going to get way less done and be way less productive because you're not stopping. It's no different than a race car in a race. They don't just race around the track for four hours. They take these things called pit stops. There's right. a reason they have those because the car will overheat. The engine will burn out. The tires will burn out. They have to change those things. So you really have to look at your health sitting at your workstation the same way for the sake of the quality of the work. Yeah. Two, two things about the, the standing desk. Um, one of them is uh, I was at a department store a number of years ago, and uh, you know when you go in the ground floor of a department store, it's the perfume section, and you have all of these uh, ladies who are trying to sell you perfume, and they're standing all day, and uh, I I kind of walked around and peeked sort of around back of where they are standing at the desk, and many of them have uh, hidden a little stool, a footstool, probably 12 inches, maybe 10 inches tall. And they alternate uh, putting one foot on this stool uh, every 10 minutes and then another, the other foot on this stool. So that what this does is rotate your lower back so that you don't get that uh, concavity in your lower back. It, it By putting one foot up, uh, it pushes your lower back out and keeps it, uh, you know, from getting sprung in the wrong direction. So that's something I would recommend. Just get a little footstool, and um, if you're going to stand for, you know, uh, extended periods at a time, alternate one foot up, one foot down, depending, you know, left and right, left and right. The other thing is get a wrist rest. You know any of those gel type things that we use and put it uh, on the front of the desk or the lip of the desk uh, and if it's at the right height which in my case the, the edge of the desk is about 44 and a half inches that means I can lean on this wrist rest uh, it's a you know soft gel type thing but that also takes the weight off of uh, my feet so that all of my 180 pounds is not coming down on my feet all the time because of this stool. And also, it's kind of like leaning up to the bar. You know, you you're, you're go to the bar to have a drink and you lean on the bar. 
this is the same thing. That, uh, for a good part of the time, when I'm standing, I'm also leaning on the desk to sort of triangulate the, uh, the forces that are at play. And uh, one other thing about the lymphatic system uh, that I was excited to read just a couple of weeks ago is that there's been a huge uh, breakthrough in uh, understanding something that was missed about the physiology of the body, which is that the lymphatic system is connected through a tube that nobody even knew was there. This was just discovered like in June of this year uh, that connects the, the lymphatic system of the body with the, with the brain. So that in addition to cleaning out the body, it's also the lymphatic system is, uh, as you said, sucking out the crap out of, uh, that collects inside our brain. And I mean, the amazing thing about it is that by the end of the 19th century, we thought we had the physiology of the body down. And so through all of the 20th century, the physiology of the body was known, you know, the plumbing and the tubes and the pipes and all of that. So here at the beginning of the 21st century, somebody has made a discovery, this basic discovery that uh, was completely unanticipated and uh, is, is turning all kinds of analysis of Alzheimer's disease, which basically is crap in the brain that isn't getting flushed out. And now they're thinking of Alzheimer's not necessarily neurologically anymore, but purely mechanical. Just, it's a plumbing issue. It's get that stuff out of there. That Alzheimer's is partly the result, they are now thinking, of improper lymphatic flushing out of stuff in the brain. And once it starts to accumulate, it's just like algae in a pond, it just starts to accumulate even more. Yeah, well, it's funny that you brought this up, actually. This is completely tangential to, to where I was going, but um, I've been reading about uh, that as well and reading about Alzheimer's and brains, you know, just kind of the way they function. And an alternate way to look at Alzheimer's that I've heard a lot is that it's starting to be called type 3 diabetes. That's one thing that I've read. But as far as the, the lymphatic system for the brain, this is a, an amazing discovery because, yes, until very recently, there was no quote-unquote lymphatic system to clean out the brain. But what scientists had found and I've, I had seen this uh, talked about in a TED talk, and the reason why sleep is so important is they actually found by doing um, MRIs of the brain while people were sleeping, they were seeing that your cerebral spinal fluid, your CSF, right. was actually circulating through the brain and flushing out right. all of the crap. So it's almost like your CSF was your lymphatic system, but now that they're finding there is a connection between the two, I mean, right. there, there are gonna be entire fields of science that come out of that. So that to me is absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. But the, the one thing I want to go back to real quick, is, and I love that you'd brought this up about making sure that you don't just stand in one position and having these little tools. I have an entire arsenal of tools that I have sitting around my desk at any given time for the very specific reason that you said, and I'll kind of list them off. And in the show notes for the episode, I'll have links to every single product. But my list is I have an Apple box, which would do the same thing that the stool does. So I can have exactly. one, yeah, one yeah. leg up at a time and I can alternate back and forth. I have a a lacrosse ball that I can use to roll under the arches of my feet, roll the heels out and just kind of work some of the stress out on the feet. And I'm able to do that because I don't wear traditional shoes when I stand and actually standing with any type of positive heel. And when I say that, like think, 
think if you were standing at your desk in high heels, obviously that's going to be really bad for your body, for your calves, for your lower back. In a much less exaggerated way, you're doing the same thing if you're standing in tennis shoes or basketball shoes, whatever it is, you have a positive heel, which is actually aligning the, your joints and your body in an improper way that it's not meant to. So I spent years trying to eradicate chronic pain issues, even while I was standing and people think, oh, well, I have lower back pains when I sit. So if I stand, all the pain goes away and you're just moving all of the problems. So I decided that I was going to wear minimal shoes and I now wear the five finger Vibrams, which are first uh -huh. of all, a great conversation starter because everybody's like, oh, cool, look at your shoes. I can see your toes. Um, but they don't realize that there's a very scientific reason that I wear them. So I have no heel whatsoever and I can use a lacrosse ball without having to take my shoes off. But the other tools that are now absolutely essential that I have right next to my desk within foot's reach, the first one is I have a half foam roller. So if anybody has used a foam roller before for a myofascial release either at the gym or doing physical therapy imagine it's cut in half and what you can do is you can take one foot at a time and you can put your other foot in front of it and you can stretch out your calves and your achilles tendon because that's where chronic shortening happens is in your tendons which is why you can have heel pain and lower leg pain if you're standing with a positive heel and it's it's just the most amazing stretch you're like oh my god this feels so good and it's like seven dollars so uh -huh. i'll put a link to it at seven bucks on amazon i have that right next to where I stand so I can just sidestep, do the half foam roller, stretch out the, the toes, stretch out the calves and the heel. But the other game changer, and this is a recent find, is I've spent years trying to find the perfect anti-fatigue mat. And there really isn't one because they're all just cushions. I've gone through anti-fatigue mats. I've gone through chef's mats. I've done yoga mats. I've tried carpets. I've tried foam mats and none of them really seem to do anything. But I discovered this thing called the Topo mat. It's T-O-P-O. -O. And if you want to learn more about it, you can just go to fitnessandpost.com slash Topo. But it's basically an anti-fatigue mat, but it has different levels of terrain. So you can prop your feet up, prop your feet down, and you, there's like a little ball in the middle so you can roll out your arches even without a lacrosse ball. And what I find is that it really encourages movement because you just want to fidget. You want to stand on one of the ridges and you want to put your foot back and put your foot forwards. And it to me, it's an absolute game changer and I will no longer stand without this mat. So for anybody that wants to make the transition to standing, this is really the tool that you have to have in your arsenal. And until a month ago, I didn't have this to recommend because it's a brand new product. It just came out recently but now anybody that stands i say get the topo mat because i absolutely love it and can't live without it but you have to have this arsenal of tools because you can't just stand in one position right. very true now what I want to transition to is we've been talking so much about activity, but I want to talk a little bit about food because what you eat and the choices of the, the material that you put inside your body, it's not just, oh, well, you know, I want to be fat or I don't want to be fat because people think of food as, well, do I want to look good or do I not want to look good? But I look at food as fuel and I think that I want the cleanest you know, least processed fuel to make sure that my brain functions and fires in an optimal level. So yeah. what, how do you approach diet and food when you're going to be on a project and you know that you have to be clear? Well, I mean, uh, just in terms of thinking of food and fuel, if you, if you think of a certain kind of uh, lamp uh, that's burning improper kind of fuel and the, uh, the wick of the lamp isn't well designed, what, what happens is you get uh, guttering and you get smoke and a little bit of light 
And uh, if a lamp is well designed, uh, you get a clean burning flame with no smoke and lots of light. And that's the same thing, that we are a, we are a lamp. Uh, when we eat food, if that's fuel, it gets burned within us. And if the fuel is wrong, uh, it's the same thing that happens with that uh, lamp. You, there's the equivalent of smoke, which is uh, just all of the junk. And it's usually from the highly refined uh, carbohydrates, sugars, and uh, other things that you know produce this uh, excess smoke uh, as the result of the combustion. So, you know, eat, uh, don't eat sugar, uh, just stay away from sugar and try to not eat those, the uh, craft services glazed donuts and all of that kind of stuff. It's very seductive because there it is, you know, and it gives you this little rush uh, initially, but in, in both the medium and long term, it's uh, deadly for you. I don't eat dinner or very, very little, uh, you know, inevitably I have to because of social obligations and stuff, but generally I, I try to get away with just eating breakfast and, uh, and lunch and coasting through the, through the evening. Um, so, that, I mean, that's a personal thing and everyone's different, but that's, uh, that's one of my solutions to the, to the problem. It's funny because I actually do the same thing a lot. I thought I was the only one, but in, you know, the stinking social obligations. So I, I can totally relate to that. But a lot of times if I'm at the office late, they're nice enough to get us lunch and dinner every day. And part of that is they're being nice. And part of it is they want to make sure that we never leave and go out somewhere. Right. Um, <laughs> but they'll be like, oh, what do you want for dinner? I'm like, oh, I'm good. And like, really? You, but, but you need dinner. You're going to be here late. I'm like, no, really? I'm, I'm good. I've got, you know, I've got some, some carrots and hummus or whatever. You I, know. Can't, I can't tell you how many times I've said those exact words. So yeah, people just don't really understand how that's possible. But if, if you're, you're putting clean burning fuel into your body, it burns more efficiently and you can go hours and hours without really needing to eat much. But if you are a sugar mm. burner, you constantly have to feed the fire every two to three hours and it just right. never ends. Um, and one thing that I love that you use the lamp analogy in the, to me, you're talking about how it, you know, it's not going to burn efficiently and there's going to be smoke. But the most important thing, the connection that people have to make is if that isn't made properly and you're not feeding it the proper fuel, what ends up happening is the lamp burns out. And yeah. burnout is a huge epidemic in the post-production industry and frankly, just throughout our culture and our society right now. So that yeah. to me is is the the end result of deciding that you're not going to focus on the proper fuel is burnout. And I actually have an entire series that I've written about burnout, my personal experience with burnout because I, I'm a self-proclaimed and very vocal workaholic. And I've been through burnout many, many times. And it was actually after my first experience with burnout that I read this passage in behind the scene and said, this is where I need to start. I need to focus on treating myself like a Ferrari and not a Ford Pinto. And it was that passage that kind of got that idea started, but it was really because I needed to avoid burnout. And I've still had those experiences, but they're much fewer and far between and the recovery time yeah. is much faster. But food is really one of those kind of force multipliers where if that's done improperly, it's going to affect everything else. Yeah. And the other one that to me is the number one force multiplier and the thing that is going to dictate whether or not you're going to survive the marathon of your project is sleep. Mm -hmm. And I've written a very detailed post about my entire routine for sleep, my philosophy of sleep, why I've prioritized it number one. So how do you approach sleep? Um, 
the best way is to be working and to be happy in your work and to look forward to working the next day. You know, I, I don't know. I don't seem to have much of a problem with, with it when I'm, when I'm working. When I'm not working, then I do have problems with, with sleep just because uh, my, my agendas start to get mixed up. Now, do you find that when you're working that to you sleep is just kind of a, an optional thing where, well, if my mind is going, I'll just cut for 20, 21 hours a day and get a couple hours of sleep and keep going? Or do you find that you will prioritize sleep just because you see that it's affecting the way that you work and make creative decisions? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm 72 years old now. So uh, I, I used to be able, maybe 30 years ago, to, to do, uh, you know, 48 hours of work at a time. Um, I can't do that anymore. I, I, if I, if I work until three or four in the morning, I really pay for it the next day. So I do, you know, cut off at, you know, 14 hours a day is, you know, that's, that's pushing it for me at this point. Yeah. And that, that's really what I've done is I've kind of created just my own rules and guidelines where, because I have a tendency to go for 16, 18 hours a day, if I don't stop myself, I just say, if I, if I've gone more than 14 hours, I just have to be done because I know if I keep going, right. yes, I'm going to get, I'm going to get two hours of work done extra today, but I'm going to most likely lose four hours yeah. the next day, either literally because I have to sleep more at the end of the next day, or just because I'm going through it. And this is a, a corporate concept. It's called presenteeism. There's absenteeism where people miss work because of sickness or ill health. But presenteeism is a concept that's rampant in the corporate world because people are at work, but they're just not functioning. Mm -hmm. And presenteeism is actually worse than absenteeism because you think you're okay and you think you're getting something done, but you're literally getting nothing done and you're just spinning your wheels. Right. And one of the main reasons for this is if you just don't get high enough quality or the high enough quantity of sleep, you're just staring at a workstation getting nothing done. So I've just yeah. convinced myself to say, well, I really want to keep working on this one thing until one in the morning. But if I don't go to bed at 10, the rest of the week, I'm going to lose an exponentially more amount of hours because of this decision. And that's kind of what keeps me with a very disciplined schedule. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, this is the other stuff that we talked about earlier, which is that when you're sleeping, that's when the, all of the junk uh, in your whole body, but particularly your brain, uh, can get cleaned out. Uh, and uh, if you don't sleep, if you don't get the right kind of sleep, that stuff tends to build up. And, you know, sleep deprivation is uh, something the CIA uses to torture people with. And uh, for, for good reason, we don't want to torture ourselves uh, to, to produce the same results. So what I would like to do now is transition a little bit to you're pretty well known as kind of being a barometer for where the industry is going as far as technology, where you'll be the first to adopt certain technologies, whether it's Final Cut Pro or now you're encouraging people to use Adobe Premiere. And I'm firmly in that camp as well. Love Adobe Premiere. I don't have a choice working in television where I work in a team. So they just dictate this is what you're going to be using. So I don't have the ability to 
to say this is what I'd like to use on my next project, but I'm a huge fan of Adobe Premiere. Uh, I don't want to go into any of the technology at all because anybody can go online and find your feelings about the technology. But being somebody that really is part of the trend setting and has been around long enough to really see this industry from the days of film to the days of digital and beyond digital now, how have you seen the cultural shift change over the last 40 years as far as the number of hours in the day, the amount required by an editor to do, whether it's editing or now doing all these other tasks as far as sound mixing on the fly and visual effects and all these other things. What have you seen just because to me, what's really interesting is the culture of our industry. I don't focus on the technology too much, but the culture of the amount of hours we're expected to work and what we're expected to do. Can you kind of walk through? how you've seen things change from the days of film to today? Well, on, a, on, a, on the basic big picture level, I don't think it's any different. Uh, we're expected to do more now in the time available because the tools are there to allow us to do it. But, you know, there's a famous uh, story. I think it was at Universal Studios. This is like 40 years ago, and there was some terrible deadline. And they were throwing as many people on the problem as they could, and people were working 16, 20 hours a day to meet the deadline. And finally, the person responsible on the film went to the head of post-production at Universal and said, well, you know, we can't keep going on like this. The, the, the guys are dropping like flies. And the answer was, get more flies. <laughs> Uh, you know, that attitude of uh, people are, you know, work people as hard as possible. If they drop, get rid of them, get somebody in to replace them. That hasn't changed. Uh, you know, um, you, you go from one place to another. It all depends on the, the mood of the, of the project and who's in control of it. Uh, but the, the issues that we're talking about, long working hours, deadlines, you know, that, that part I don't think is, has changed. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. 
Well, I'm glad that you said that because I think the people will start to convince themselves once they kind of get into it and they're in the the trenches saying, well, this is just the worst that it's ever been. And people didn't used to work this way. And, you know, technology has made this so much worse. And I think it is important for them to hear this is just kind of the way that it is. Yeah. And I think that once you are able to accept that, then you can deal with the issue because trying to deny the issue and saying this is inhuman and right. nobody used to do this. And now you want me to do visual effects and you want me to edit the the dialogue and the effects and the backgrounds and the music. People never right. used to do that. And if there's anybody that knows about doing it all, it's you because you've done your own mixes well yeah i mean the, the point that you just made which i made earlier which is the the, the thing that's different is that uh the, the multitasking aspect which is now enabled by the very nature of the technology that we're working when i was first beginning to do this in the late 60s you know you had the you edited picture and you edited the dialogue track and that was basically it Maybe if you were lucky enough to get a camera steam back, you could have a music track as well. And if you really arrange things uh, complicatedly uh, and got rid of one of the picture screens, you could have a picture head and three soundtracks. But, you know, that, that was a very crude way of doing, uh, you know, dialogue, music, and, and sound effects. And it was very complicated to do that, given the mechanical nature of what we were doing. Now, you know, you uh, don't have that, uh, it, it's all laid out in front of you in whatever system you're using. You can do the visual effects up to a certain point of complexity. You can do the, you know, music editing, you can do the dialogue editing, and, and as well as the picture editing. And so that, that, that part has, has compensated for the fact that certain mechanical things now we don't have to worry about anymore we don't have to reconstitute daily roles anymore that's taken care of so well since you don't have to do that you can do this instead so you know the the lord giveth and the lord taketh away you know the the amount of work that has to be done to meet the deadlines and to get the creative idea across I don't think that's uh, that's changed. Yeah, and that's really what technology does is you say, oh, well, we're going to be able to do these things so much faster, so we're going to have more free time. And it's like, no, you're just going to fill up that with more things to do. Right. I mean, but that's true. You know, if, if when the sewing machine was invented, you know, 200 and plus years ago, if people had had just done on the sewing machine what they used to do by hand, they would have worked for half an hour a day and then gone home. But... That isn't the way it works. You know, here's the sewing machine. Now we can do this. Now you can do twice as many things and you can do more complicated embroidery. And now there's competition between the various sweatshops. How many are they turning out? Well, we can, can we turn out 10% more and can, can we make it look better uh, than they do? And so you, you in the end, uh, the sweatshop is called a sweatshop for a reason. And that's, uh, you know, to a certain extent, that's the world we live in as well. Yeah, I, I don't think that there, there are certainly a lot of analogies between the the idea of the, the sweatshop and what I think a lot of editors feel they do, especially in reality, where they just have these giant bullpens of right. editors and assistants and story editors just, you know, cranking away and doing all their logging. Um, but I want to go back a second again to this idea of doing so many different tasks and being expected to do so much more. Do you feel that because editing is now not just 
picture editing and dialogue editing, and there's so many other aspects to it. Do you feel that this is kind of diluting the idea of really being a specialist and a storyteller? Or do you think that it is just now an accepted part of being an editor and you should be a little bit more master of all trades? Because I will have people email me a lot and say, should I just learn editing or should I learn all these other tools and tricks and pieces of software and where do I start? So right. if you if you want to say to yourself, I am an editor, what does that mean to you today? Day, given the technology. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the second part of that. Uh, I, I think there are all ways of telling stories. Uh, and you, you should get involved in all of these things. It makes you a better artist uh, to, to help to get your uh, storytelling uh, across as effectively as possible. This also goes back to the, the foundation when we started Zoetrope Studios, uh, you know, Francis uh, Coppola, George Lucas, and me back in the late 60s, uh, we were trying on a professional level to do what we had gotten really used to in film school, which was this multitasking aspect. And uh, why can't the sound editor also be the re-recording mixer? The sound editor put the tracks together. Why can't that person... Uh, mix them because that person knows how they should sound. And the technology at that time was was beginning to get to a place which enabled that to happen. It couldn't have happened 10 years earlier, but in the 50s, the re-recording technology was so arcane and, and particular and complicated that you didn't, you had to have two different people doing it. But by the late 60s, early 70s, um, and certainly by the late 70s, the beginning of automation, um, the, those lines started to get really blurred. And clearly with digitization, uh, the, the blurring is almost complete now. And, you know, we're, you know, we can edit, we can be on the set editing the material as it gets shot and doing the dialogue editing and at the same time. And, you know, so... It's it's crazy, but that's the that's the world that we live in, and I think it's only going to get more uh, in that direction. I'm very very glad that you said that because I think that a lot of people are very resistant, and I see this on social media and Facebook all the time, where people will say, "I'm an editor. I should not be doing, you know, having to do these visual effects shots," and they're asking me to build entire backgrounds. And what do you mean I have to edit my music? That's a music editor's job, and I feel like that we need to remove that resistance and realize that at the end of the day, doing these things is still going to make us a better editor. And I believe that there's a middle ground where if you decide, you know what, I'm going to take 25% of my day and I'm going to learn Premiere. I'm going to take 25% of my day and learn After Effects, 25 learning Pro Tools, another 25 learning this program or that program. If you're splitting your time that much, you're never going to be as good at one of those skills. Right. But at the same time, you have to embrace the holistic approach of realizing that this is now what's expected of us and you have to have some level of versatility. And I've said the, my one level of absolute expertise is going to be storytelling and working in the timeline and doing what I can do within my Avid timeline or my Premier timeline, um, which to me means that I need to be an absolute expert at cutting dialogue and cutting story, but also adding backgrounds and building a realistic sound environment and being very good at editing my music. 
Those are the three where I hone those crafts as specifically as possible. The areas where I have some level where I can be helpful, I can do some basic compositing, I can do after effects, I can do some motion graphic design. Color correction, I really have very little skills whatsoever, but I know just barely enough that I can kind of help out. But when it comes to the storytelling aspect, the dialogue, the sound and the backgrounds and doing the music, those are just expected to me at this point. And you should be really good at those and you have to embrace them. But the funny thing is, and I don't know how much you can speak to this, but our own union doesn't embrace this. And Uh we will actually be castigated. And I've worked on jobs where the union has come in and put posters on the wall. And it says, you should not be editing sound effects. You should Mm -hmm. not be editing your own music. And I'm thinking, you guys are supposed to be protecting us, but you're actually telling me not to do the things that make me better at what I do. So have, have you have you kind of seen this shift as well? Well, sure. I mean, that was, you know, when we graduated from film school in the mid-60s, what we found in Hollywood uh, at the time was this same kind of division. If you cut sound effects, you can't mix it. And if you cut picture, you can't cut sound effects. And, and, and that was one of the reasons we moved to San Francisco is that we were able to then just geographically get out of that environment. And the, the situation in, in San Francisco was that it, it was uh, kind of anyone in post-production, they just didn't concentrate on it. It was like, okay, you're in post-production. So we were able then to migrate from task to task without worrying about these uh, divisions. And, you know, that's been reflected over the developments of the last 40 plus years. It's a much more uh, open system now than it was 40 years ago, but there are still these divisions in it. But I don't know, the the wind is blowing so strong in the the direction of uh, migration from one platform to another, technologically speaking, that in the end, I I don't think there's any way to resist it. Yeah, and one thing that I really wanna clarify too, because I'll get this pushback, especially from people that are music editors and sound designers, they'll say, but I'm a specialist and this is what I do all day long. And I'll say, absolutely. There's no way that I would ever send out a finished cut for broadcast or put in the theater until it's been through the brain surgeons that know their craft better than I do. But at the same time, they have to understand that no longer can I present a dialogue only assembly to a studio or network. They expect something that's broadcast ready, which means that my temp backgrounds, my temp sound effects and my music editing need to be almost imperceptible. And then you hand it off to the professionals and you go to your mix and you say, whoa, oh my God, this is so much better. I love it. So I want to make sure that people understand those parts of the the post-production puzzle are absolutely crucial, but you have to be able to do enough at a high enough level that you can convince studio executives and more importantly, test audiences that what they're watching is a finished product until you have the time and the budget to get it to your professional sound designers, sound editors, dialogue editors, music editors, composers, and whatnot. Yeah, I I mean, it it also, yeah, it also depends on the budget of the film and the schedule and how many people are getting hired to do the the job. If you're working on a film with many people in post-production, then the work can be apportioned out. If you're working on a project where there's just you and the director, you know, the the documentary I did, Particle Fever, a couple of years ago, it was just, that was it. You know, it was just me and the the director. 
Um, so I had to do all of these other things uh, as well. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the word uh, documentary because that's literally where I wanted to go to next as I know that you're working on a documentary film now and that is a completely different world than doing scripted. Um, but if you can, talk a little bit about the project that you're working on now because it, it, it sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's a feature documentary about a CIA coup in 1953 that erased democracy in Iran um, and installed the dictatorship of the Shah uh, in order to keep the oil flowing. Uh, the, the democratic government in Iran in, in the early 50s had nationalized uh, the oil in Iran, which at that time was like a no-no from the point of view of the big oil companies. And so there was uh, fulminations about what to do, and the response was this uh, coup that precipitated the 25-year reign of the Shah uh, of Iran, which became <clears throat> more and more despotic. And then the pendulum swung at the end of that in 1979 with uh, the Islamic Republic. So and, you know, we're still dealing with the repercussions of something that got started you know, over 60, 60 years ago. So this, this is about what happened uh, to begin that, 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 that pendulum swinging. Uh, and do you find that working on documentaries that your process is that terribly different than if you're working on scripted? Uh, at a certain point, the, it's identical. You know, you have the film in front of you and you're trying to tell it in the most effective, clear, uh, emotional and the way in the shortest time possible. Uh, getting to that point, though, is very different because in a theatrical film, uh, shot under the usual circumstances. For every line of dialogue in the script, you have 50 different readings of that line using eight or 12 different camera positions. And your job as an editor is to, along with the director, obviously, to decide what combination of readings and interpretations are going to be the best. And the possibilities obviously expand exponentially. Uh, in a documentary, usually something only happens once. If you're lucky, you might have that event covered by two cameras or, or more, depending. But you then have to, there is this singularity, and you have to find ways of working that singularity and to tell the story in, in the most effective way. Usually there's much more footage on a documentary than there is on a, on a feature. The Particle Fever had 500 hours of, uh, of material. So yes, we have, sing we have single events, uh, things that happen only once. On the other hand, we have lots of events. And so you have to choose your events carefully and decide what style of editing is going to allow all of these things to live with each other. Um, and sometimes that style of, uh, is compared to the way we're used to on theatrical features, sometimes the style of documentaries is slightly chaotic because you're not always in control of everything uh, when you're shooting. Um, and, but the great thing about that is that coping with these unusual situations sometimes provokes you to making discoveries about how to put films together that would not happen if you were shooting 
uh, or working with material that was more conventionally shot. Well, and it sounds like what you're talking about as a documentary editor is you're doing something that many would call writing. Yeah. And this is this is a, a, a very controversial topic that came up in a recent episode where we were talking about the role of the editor and the perception of the editor in our culture and how a lot of times you're actually doing a lot of the writing, but we're considered below the line. And I will put a link to the episode that I had re recently with this entire conversation about the concept of being below the line and how it's become much more than an accounting term and it's almost become a social status in a way. So what I wanna be very respectful of your time and I know you have to go, but before I lose you, what are your thoughts about the idea that an editor is considered below the line? Well, I mean, there are historical reasons for that because uh, initially film editing um, was not called film editing. Uh, this is back, you know, 100 years ago. It was, there were a lot of women doing it because it was seen to be a kind of sewing. It was like, uh, you know, tapestry work and women are good at that. It was also seen like library work, which, it, and all of these things are true even today. But, you know, I think we're still dealing with the historical legacy of that. Whether it will ever change, uh, you know, I don't know. But it's, uh, you know, I, that's part of when you, when you sign on to be an editor, you kind of have to realize that's, that's you know, the, you're, you have this incredibly privileged position to be the person who finally, what comes out of your hands is what is going to be finally the thing that is seen and heard by the by the audience, and none of the other crafts really have that amount of control. Uh, whether you're the cinematographer or the costume designer or the actors, uh, production designers, the final product is not so much. Uh, uh, they don't have so much control over the final product. Whereas a film editor, on the very basic frame level uh, does and also uh, is somebody who collaborating with the director and producers uh, can shape the structure of the piece uh, sometimes in very uh, important basic ways which as you pointed out are very akin to writing. So then it basically, what it sounds like what you're saying, and I'm definitely not going to put words into your mouth, but the way that I'm synthesizing it is that given the amount of influence that we have, you would agree that we do, despite the politics, belong in the same category as a writer, a director, a producer, or even a composer, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for an editor to be considered below the line. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, give, give or take a few semicolons, I would agree with that. And do you see any way that that can be changed? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what the, what the ways to do that are. The, Architecture of the the economic architecture of the way films are put together is uh, fairly rigid, but you know amazing things have happened. And anything is anything is possible. Well, along the, the lines of anything being possible, just the the fact that we've had the opportunity to have this conversation to me shows that anything is indeed possible. Because I was a snot nosed kid that didn't know anything about editing and went out of my way and found Walter Murch on YahooPeopleSearch.com and got his address and wrote him a letter and a decade later here we are having a conversation via Skype so this is just 
been yeah. an absolute tremendous pleasure and inspiration to me. And I cannot thank you enough for, sure. for being a part of this and, and lending your ear to the fitness and post movement. Yeah, I'd just like to add one thing, which is the uh, another part of what we do is that it has a uh, pulse to it meaning you're working on a film for, uh, uh, let's say, a year. You're working on it with, with great intensity, and then it stops. And you have a period after that, uh, and who knows how long it can be, where you don't know what's next, and you have to come down from this high state of agitation of working on the film to, let's call it, a more normal state, and that period is uh, one which can last anywhere from 10 days to 10 weeks, depending on, on you and the project and other things. It's a period that I would compare to being seasick, that the, uh, as an editor, what we're used to is every day we come in, we work, and material is coming from the set or from the visual effects department or somewhere, and we are putting it into a coherent relationship with everything else in the project. And that is affecting what the project is and uh, vice versa. Uh, the project affects the material that we're adding. But the point is that we are making things as coherent as possible on a daily basis. We're, we're taking things from incoherence to, co to a greater degree of coherence. When you stop working, there's a kind of rebound effect uh, where because your daily experience is of increasing coherence, when you stop working, what happens is that you feel that everything is becoming incoherent. And this is just a natural effect. It's something in neurology that's called the waterfall effect. If you look at a waterfall for 30 seconds, and then uh, avert your gaze to the wall uh, on the other side, uh, the wall will seem to be moving in the opposite direction to the waterfall. So there's a kind of, uh, as our, our daily experience is of coherence in the editing room, when that stops suddenly, you look at the wall, you come home, you sit on the sofa, you look at the wall, and I'm, I'm just being metaphorical here, You things will seem to be unlocking themselves. And when I first experienced this, uh, it was very disorienting because I thought, what's happening? Is it me uh, or am I going crazy? I learned over time that no, this is just a natural rebound effect and you have to, like seasickness, you just have to endure it while the, the ship, you know, wait for the ship to get into port and uh, you're not, you know, the, this is a natural part uh, of the of the process, but so I, I think I would also uh, say to the people listening to this podcast that this is something that you can expect in one form or another. Uh, the only thing to do about it is to just know that it's natural and to uh, kind of hold on to things uh, while this process. Don't make any big decisions. Uh, during this period, and eventually it will uh, ease off, and then you can decide uh, many things, uh, among which, uh, like, what should I do next? <laughs>
Yeah, and it, uh, another thing that comes from this, and I'm so glad you brought this up because it was the one thing on my list of things I was hoping to hit that I didn't. So it's almost like you're reading my notes. It's creepy. But there's this thing that I term the hiatus flu, right. where you push, you push, you push, you push, and then the day you lock picture, which actually is a very soft term nowadays, right. um, but the day that you're actually off payroll and you're done, you get completely and totally sick. You are leveled for days. This is something that I talked to Alan Bell about a lot where he has the same experience where he'll be on a giant tentpole film for two years. And then for two weeks, he's just laid out. And I love the the idea of being seasick. And the the most important thing that I took from that is don't make decisions because if you're seasick, you're saying, I am never going on a boat again, ever, right? right? (laughs) But then you're fine again. And a week later, you're like, hey, let's go out on the water, right? Right. There's nothing wrong with the water. It's just your perception of the experience. Yeah. And I know many people that at the end of a project say, oh my God, I, I have to find a new career path. I just can't do this anymore. And I'm not immune to this. I've been through this many times where I've been done and said, I just, I can't put myself through this anymore. But that's when I start to really focus again on my health and making sure that I'm keeping a regular pace so that when that moment does hit, it doesn't hit me nearly as severely because I'm keeping the same rituals and things that I'm doing with my health on a daily basis. So the hiatus flu doesn't hit me as hard. The seasickness doesn't hit me as hard. And I don't feel the sense of, oh my God, I'm just, I'm going to sell insurance for the rest of my life because I can never do this again. Right, exactly. You know, Um, so if somebody is listening to this that's fairly young or they're not terribly familiar with the absolute breadth of work that you've done to really change this industry and change the way that people look at film, where do people start if they really want to jump into the the best works that you've done and learn more about you and your philosophy of editing? Um, I don't know. Go search online, I guess. Uh, there's, there's, there's books and, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of uh, lectures that I've given that are, uh, that are uh, online and um, yeah, good luck. Well, my recommendation for anybody and that this is a required text when I teach at USC is in the blink of an eye because it's it's very succinct and it's a really good introduction where it's a fairly thin book. It's you know, it's not something that you're like, oh my God, I'm never gonna get through this. It's a really easy read, but it's very insightful and there are gonna be at least twenty light bulbs that go off in your head. <laughs> so if you've if you have not read in the blink of an eye and you have any inspiration whatsoever of becoming an editor, that's the place to start and that's where I will send people and I'll have a, a link for it in the show notes okay. um, but it's very very easy to find um, but thank you so so much for your time i greatly appreciate it um, and i know that my listeners will appreciate it immensely as well okay you bet. so thank you so much walter okay zach thank you all right have a good day bye-bye thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. 
To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.